Uh, we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John, and uh, last week we took a break, and so we'll be looking at John chapter 17 this morning. So if you guys have your Bibles, can I hear you say a word? Thank you, guys. John chapter 17, it will be projected up on the screen. Uh, I'm just going to be going over the first five verses. This is from the High Priestly Prayer. There's absolutely no way that I can cover the whole prayer in one sermon, and I believe what Pastor Harold will do is continue uh, with uh, teaching of this prayer next week, and if he doesn't, then I completely lied to you, so don't give him a hard time, but I'll be giving the first five verses a shot this morning. So chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you sanctify us at this moment through your word? I pray that you would keep us attentive to what you have to uh, speak to us. Uh, I pray, Father God, that it would be your word that gives hope and courage, that Lord reminds us of the ultimate sacrifice that was uh, taking place on the cross. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time. Would you help me? as, Lord, I have this opportunity to teach from this passage. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I was sharing with uh, the uh, service earlier today with the, uh, the, the teachers, volunteer teacher service. We have a volunteer teacher service at 9 o'clock. Um, that for the past two weeks, I've been going to the dentist to uh, do some work. Uh, get some crown work, get crown work, do get some crowns done, root canals, uh, tooth extractions, because ultimately I need to get implants for my teeth. And uh, it's been a very painful experience. Uh, every time I've been going, I've been there for three hours each time. And uh, my head, it's like pounding, and so I'm constantly having pain medication. Uh, but I remember the, the last week when I went in, uh, because all of the work that needs to get done is in the upper part of my mouth. He, uh, my dentist, who, is my son, who was my Sunday school teacher a long time ago when I was a young kid, he would numb me on this side about six, seven shots, and then another five shots on this side. And by the time he's done working here on this side, he would proceed and go to this side. But because it took so long, by the time he goes to the other side, the numbing would go away. And I know this is a weird thing to do, and this is a very dumb thing to do, but I thought to myself, hey, you know what? I just want to see how much of a pain tolerance I have. I'm not going to tell him that uh, it's not numbed. And, you know, because at any moment I could just raise my hand and tell him, hey, it actually hurts, and he can numb me again. And so I started to just kind of prepare myself, and he was stitching up my tooth socket because, you know, he had extracted the teeth, the tooth, and then he took the needle and went through one side of the gum, and it was pretty painful. I thought, mm, I, 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 I did one of those, like, mm, like I didn't say anything yet, but I was like, oh, that, yeah, that, I felt that. I felt that. And it went through... And I could feel the, the sutures just going through my gums. And uh, sorry, I'm getting real detail here. And he would, the moment he tried to go in through the other, the inside part of my gum, now that's when I started screaming. I was like, ah, all right, stop right there. I feel it. Numb me right now, please. 
six shots, whatever you got to do right now. And it really numbed me right away. And as I was going through this process, I had some time to think through it. And I was like, oh, man, I was, I was so weak. <laughs> I didn't last that long. But the second thought was, hmm, oftentimes our physical pain can be numb with medication. And thank God for that. But I wonder what happens when emotionally or spiritually we're going through deep despair. When we're going through agony or just a complete sense of loneliness and sorrow, don't we oftentimes also seek to temporarily numb that pain with whatever unhealthy outlet that we seek, whatever vice that we're used to, whatever chronic sin that we turn to? We all have it, right? I mean, ideally it would be great that every time we go through tribulation or hardship or a period of sorrow or deep despair that we turn to God and say, God, I need you. I need you to help me and assist me in every moment. But reality is, oftentimes we turn to whether it's drinking, whether it's excessive shopping, whether it's just binge watching or whatever it is, we turn and we have this vice or whatever sin that we turn to, to temporarily numb whatever we're going through and we get caught in this vicious cycle. We get caught in this vicious cycle where instead of turning to God in prayer, instead of really submitting and genuinely repenting before God and asking for his guidance, what we do is we turn to these temporary idols or whatever it is that we think is going to temporarily numb us, but ultimately never going to solve the problem or the issue. We turn to these things and what happens is we tend to forget the grace that God offers, the redemptive plan that God had plan ever since before the creation of the world, we forget about these things. And what happens as a result of this is we lose sight of how precious I am before the eyes of Jesus Christ. I lose sight of how precious of a son and a daughter of Christ I am. And when I lose sight of how precious I am because I completely lost out on the grace that he has to offer because I continue to turn to these idols and whatever I think is going to temporarily fix my problems inside my heart, what happens is when tribulation comes, we have this unhealthy perception that, man, God does not like me. Because the scripture tells us tribulations will come, suffering will come, but because as humanity, what we do is we're so rebellious and we think I can fix things, I'm going to turn to all these other idols and not bring it before God. During the valley low moments, what happens is we completely forget that God is there and tribulation happens and then all of a sudden, God does not like me. Tribulation becomes a way for me to be angry at God and say, God, why is this happening in my life? When scripture tells us that tribulation is a way where we can have our relationship with God so enriched. Scripture tells us completely opposite that tribulation is a period where we can turn to God's faithfulness. Our faith is deep and it's stretched. But because we're caught in this vicious cycle, we lose sight of who I am. I forget of the grace that God has to offer. I completely lose sight that this tribulation is something God is allowing to happen. Maybe it's there because he wants my complete undevoted attention because he cares and loves for me. You, need, you know, John 17 is a prayer. It's a prayer in which Jesus himself 
Matthew and Mark tell us that he is in deep despair, in sorrow. Luke, the doctor, tells us that he's in such deep agony that he is sweating blood. He's sweating blood. That's how much he is in deep agony. You know, I don't know about you, but I have, uh, in seasons of my life, certain jams or songs that I turn to and that I enjoy when I'm just driving or whatever else that I'm doing. And right now I'm into this Christian song called Hills and Valleys. I don't know if you know this song. It's by Torin Wells, a Christian songwriter. And I love his chorus. Can I read this chorus for you guys? His chorus goes like this. I'm not gonna sing it to you. You guys have to listen to it though when you go back home. And this is, imagine, I mean, this is, I love this song. But the chorus is, it's very simple. I'm a very simple guy, so simple lyrics like this really get to me. On the mountains, I will bow my life to the one who set me there. In the valley, I will lift my eyes to the one who sees me there. When I'm standing on the mountain, I didn't get there on my own. When I'm walking through the valley, I know I'm not alone. You're God of the hills and valleys, hills and valleys. God of the hills and valleys, and I'm not alone. Amen. Did you like that? Maybe so simple and profound, but you got to listen to what the chorus. I really love it, but Torin Wells talks about this tension in his song as Christians we face these mountaintop experiences. All of us may be going through some of that right now where things are going well and we must learn that during these mountaintop experiences, I must bow low, extremely low in humility and know that God is the one who has set me there. It is not by my own personal achievement or by my own works, but it is God ultimately who has, who has placed me in these mountaintop experiences. But as a believer, we have this tension. We live in this tension where we experience these mountaintop experiences experiences, but also these valley low moments. And the song talks about how when we're experiencing these valley low moments, we must also learn to stand tall and know that I'm not alone, that God is there, that he's sovereign. And in this spectrum of valley low moments and mountaintop experiences, that it is within the grace of God that I, I, that I am, that I exist, that things are going to be okay. I love that song. This morning, I want to propose to you that Jesus was experiencing, right before he prayed this prayer, a valley low moment. I got to take you to John 13, though, to make my context clear that during the moment where it's supposed to be a Passover meal, where people are gathering to commemorate the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, that it's supposed to be a celebratory type of meal, and it's supposed to be good. Here in John chapter, in John chapter 13, earlier chapter, in four chapters prior, we have this upper room discourse where the disciples go up to this upper room. And all of a sudden, the disciples and Jesus are supposed to have this meal, but all of a sudden, Jesus begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have ever gone through an experience where somebody washed your feet in a spiritual way, because I I was part of this campus ministry back then, and we had those moments where we would wash the disciples' feet, and it was so intimate, it's so tense, and Jesus is providing this type of moment and context for his disciples, But furthermore, as he's watching the feet of the disciples, I mean, I love what Peter kind of says. He says, God, what are you doing, Jesus? The most unlikeliest person in this room to be doing this work. What are you doing? You're not supposed to be washing our our, our feet. 
And, he, and Jesus goes, well, you don't understand. I have to wash your feet. I have to wash your whole body. And then Peter goes, oh, well, you should wash my whole body. And there's this dialogue that they have. But furthermore, to intensify the context of what is happening here, prior to this prayer, Jesus says, one of you, are, one of you here is going to betray me. I mean, Jesus, this is supposed to be a celebratory meal but you're talking about people who've been with you for the past three years and you're saying that someone is going to betray you? And Jesus continues and says, not only will one of you betray me, I'm gonna reveal who's going to betray me. Whoever takes this morsel that I dip in this cup, it's that person. You see, the disciples had absolutely no category of what was happening at this time. It's tense. I mean, if you're, one of the, the, if you're one of the disciples, you don't want to make eye contact with Jesus right now. You're like, what? Betrayal? That's not me. It's exposed that it's Judas. But even then, John tells us that they didn't fully grasp and understand what was happening during that period. And then chapters 14 to 16 is what we call the farewell discourse in which Jesus reteaches or teaches all these new things to the disciples, things such as I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He teaches us that I am, you know, that you must abide in me. Nothing is possible through me. And he's teaching all these things at the very end of his farewell discourse prior to this prayer that we just read in verse 33 of chapter 16. This is what Jesus says. I have said these things to you, the farewell discourse, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, Jesus is prepping them. He's saying, look, it's not a matter of if you face tribulation. You will. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will face tribulation. But I'm telling you to take heart. I have overcome it. And bam, he goes into this prayer and prays about himself. Just three things that I want to outline through this prayer that I hope gives you assurance or gives you guidance and helps you navigate through these seasons of valley low moments in which we can suffer right. In which we can suffer right. I know that sounds odd. But this is the first thing that Jesus says after he says, after he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, Father, one of the most tender things that he could express. He says, Father, the hour has come. This hour that has been talked about over this, the last several chapters that has not yet arrived, but Jesus himself right now is saying, the hour has come. The hour of betrayal, the hour of agony, the hour as I'm thinking through what's about to happen, this monumental thing that is about to take place on the cross, the hour has come in which I'm going to go through physical, crazy amount of pain and experience the wrath of God for the sins of the world. The hour has come. And the first thing that Jesus says in his prayer is, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Ooh. Glorify me, God. 
Because you know the hour has come. Tribulation is about to take place. I need you to glorify me. But ultimately, because this is the means in which I will give ultimate, maximize the glory for your name. What Jesus is saying is, once again, in other words, glorify me in this season. Because in whatever I do, and ultimately, through the work of the cross... You must receive all of the glory. How must we suffer first and foremost in a way that we give God the glory? I know. I know that sounds odd or maybe even so vague or general. Okay, give God the glory when I suffer or when I'm in seasons of tribulation. But let's take it a little bit maybe deeper. Jesus goes, glorify me so that I may glorify you. And what he says is in verse 2, since you have given him, and he's talking about Jesus, authority over all flesh. Everybody say all. Let's try that again. Say all. I mean, yes. All meaning it doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what political agenda or political party you're a part of. It doesn't matter. It's talking about you giving me authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. To give eternal life. To give eternal life. You know, when I was a Christian, younger in my period, in, in my younger period, in my younger days, sorry. Whenever I heard things such as, yes, Jesus died on the cross so that he could provide eternal life for you, it didn't really sink in for me. It didn't make sense. And the reason why it didn't make sense or the reason why it wasn't such good news for me, and you may be in this boat, is because eternity was, first of all, hard to grasp. But second of all, eternity for me, I kept on thinking about it as a location, as a place, as Oh, heaven, I'm going to go to heaven. Now, I know that heaven is a place, but I don't know clearly what heaven is. Scripture tells us it's a place where there's going to be no suffering, no pain, no tears. No one's going to be hungry anymore. And it's this concept, and it's this place it is, but I completely lost sight of the fact that it's not just the place. Further, greater more, it's a person. That eternity in heaven That God the Father provides through the atonement of the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, Father, the Son, dying on the cross, provides a way for me to have a relationship with God. That it's a person. You know, let me try to explain this to you in just kind of modern terms. You know what's pretty hellish for me? Here on earth, on this side, traffic. I hate traffic. Now, thank God that I don't have to face it every day, but you do. Some of you here who work every day, uh, Monday through Friday, in like far areas, you have to face traffic. When I was in college, I had to commute from San Diego to Torrance every weekend to go back and teach Friday night Bible study for my youth group students. And so for the first two and a half years of college, freshman year, sophomore year, and half of my third year, 
I would commute every Friday, leave around 2 o'clock and get to Torrance by like 6, 6.30, sometimes even 7. Because you hit traffic in Oceanside, Carlsbad, then Mission Viejo, and then you hit traffic by the 405. And then by the time you get to Torrance, that last stretch, you're just like, I'm almost home. And then there's always some sort of traffic or signaler. Something always happens, and so it takes forever. By the time I'd get to church, I'd be so angry and pissed and mad at my youth group students. They're like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, ah, nothing is wrong. Nothing. I'd be so mad. But, you know, the last six months, the last six months of that commute, I had met my now wife, Esther. We met in college. And I found out that she needs to commute to Fullerton every weekend. I thought, hey, let's commute together. And so we would commute every Friday. I would pick her up. And to be completely honest, man, this hellish experience of the traffic was actually pretty heavenly. <laughs> she would start talking to me. She would sing songs. And I'm like, oh, voice of an angel. <laughs> I would want to stop by actually certain places just to lengthen the time and moment that I would spend with her. I would want to stop by McDonald's. I'd want to stop by, you know, wherever it is. I said, Get whatever you want, dollar meal, <laughs> whatever you want. But do you get what I'm saying? I mean, these moments, I looked forward to it. Why? Because of a person. You see, heaven, Jesus himself here says in verse 2, that this is eternal life, not a place, but that they know you, the only true God. That they may know you, ginosko is the Greek word, and this word has this connotation of experiential knowledge, not just this theoretical, universal, vague, surface-level type of knowledge, but experiential in which I know that God, every season I'm through my valley low, you are there. That God, wherever you are in my mountaintops, that God, you are there. It's an experiential type of knowledge that Jesus here is talking about and he says eternal life in heaven with God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit now that is wonderful to me but it's only available because of the work of the cross because Jesus lived a life that you and I could never live Jesus died a death that you and I were supposed to die and it took the sins in the most sacrificial, most self-sacrificial way. You know, two weeks ago, as all of you guys know, as you watch the news, the Vegas shooting, I know a lot of us have been maybe keeping up or reading up with these stories of people who passed away through this horrific incident. And Times Magazine uh, did a uh, special on each individual, very short uh, kind of like paragraph or two, and... I stumbled upon this one story, and I wanted to kind of read a story of Jack Beaton, who is 54. When bullets, started, uh, when bullets started raining down from above, Jack Beaton leaned his body over his wife, Lori, and wrapped his arms around her in full protection. He told me, get down, get down, get down. He told me, I love you, Lori. 
and his arms were around me and his body just went heavy on me. Lori told the Associated Press the two had traveled from Bakersfield, California to Las Vegas to celebrate their 23rd wedding anniversary at the Route 91 Country Music Festival. The last thing Beaton ever did was save his wife's life. I screamed his name and he wasn't answering me. There was a lot of blood. Beaton, a 54-year-old construction worker, had been shot and later died. He leaves behind a 20-year-old son and an 18-year-old daughter. I knew every day that he would protect me and take care of me and love me unconditionally. And what he did is no surprise to me, and he is my hero, Lori said. As I was reading the story of Jack Bean, I couldn't help again but to just be, my heart was so heavy as I was trying to envision him laying over his wife and literally getting shot and saying, I love you. As he was saying, I love you. And I couldn't help but to really think about this Jesus in this moment of complete, utter pain and agony where he knows what's about to happen. He even prays if this cup may pass. If he's thinking, God, I'm going to face the wrath of this world. And scripture tells us that any moment he could have said, asked for legions to come and say, you know, just free me and I'm done. But he doesn't. He willingly, even the, the New City Catechism that we, that we uh, confess today, you know, it reminds us that Jesus Christ himself voluntarily, willingly had to pay for the ransom of our sins. And the whole time he's saying, I love you. If the first way in which we must suffer is we must suffer to, in a way where we give God the glory, the second is we must suffer in a way where we glory in the work of the cross. And the third and last way in which we could suffer, and I just want to submit to you, comes in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do you know what Jesus is claiming here in verse 5? He's claiming deity. I know Jesus gets attacked many times by non-Christians. It says Jesus was not God. Jesus was just a good rabbi, a good teacher, and he had sound doctrine, but he wasn't God. But this verse here and many other verses claim otherwise. Jesus himself, what he's praying to his father, I mean, this is so profound. He says, God, the glory that I had was veiled because if somebody saw my glory, no one here on earth would be able to live. But as veiled as it was in your own presence before the world existed, in the beginning, give me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. People need to know that this work that was done on the cross was not just 100% human, Jesus Christ. It was 100% God, Jesus Christ. That people will know that you were fully in control, sovereign since the beginning. I mean, that knowledge and understanding should bring ultimate peace, ultimate understanding for many of you here who may be experiencing valley low seasons or moments of your life. 
where we must understand that, Jesus, you're modeling in your prayer here that, God, I must suffer in a way that, God, I want to give the glory to you the most. God, more specifically, to glory in the work of the cross, on the work that you've done for us as humanity, where I have a relationship with you, and I'm talking experiential knowledge relationship. And God, ultimately, that Jesus, you are sovereign because you are God. And that's only the first five verses of this prayer. And so this morning, I just leave you simply with this. Can I ask you, how do you respond? How do you respond when tribulation or suffering or criticism or whatever it is comes? How do you respond? Are you quick to just turn to whatever outlet, unhealthy outlet it is, and say, I'm going to numb this because I'm so good at that. I'm so good at numbing whatever hurt, whatever pain, whatever trauma, whatever it is that I'm feeling here because, you know, whatever is happening. Or will you be able to, in prayer, will you be able to humbly, will you be able to understand Jesus You, in the most lowest seasons of your life, came and prayed before God and said, God, glorify me so that you may receive all the glory. Glorify me because the work I'm about to do is going to change, alter everything. And God, glorify me because I am God. Can I give you guys simply about a minute or two at this time before we continue in our worship to reflect, to think through And as you just kind of think, maybe some of you here in this room are going through a valley low season. Can I charge and can I ask you to humbly come in repentance to break whatever curse of this constant seeking of idols or temporary numbing of our hearts And as we do that, that it would lead us to glory in the cross. That as we think about what Jesus has done, that this hour has come and that I am about, that Jesus is about to come and die and give up his life, that we may glory in that. Be reminded that the grace he offers is sufficient, is enough. And folks, maybe some of you here are going through just mountaintop, things are going well. Praise God. Maybe we need to ask God, could you humble me? Because I'm also getting numb to the fact that I made it here. I'm getting numb to the fact that I can achieve, that I can do when actually, Jesus, it is you who has placed me there.